You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Amen. Okay, well, if you've got your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4, where I left off last week. We're going to start in verse 31, and then we're going to go to Acts 5 as well. How many of you have ever had anyone lie to you and you knew They were lying. By show of hands, you knew that dirty dog was lying to you from the beginning. Uh, When my kids were little, I've got four kids, and uh, when my my oldest daughter, Bailey, she was five, and my son, Bryson, he was three and a half, four years old, uh, they were with my mom and dad. They call my mom and dad uh, Nana and Papa. And so Nana and Papa took them to a picnic that was going on with their church, and there's a lot of people at this place, and they were having fun, hanging out, and there was this big pond there. uh, So they were fishing and hanging out at the pond, and they had a paddle boat. And so uh, mom took Bailey and Bryson on the paddle boat and they went out into the water and, you know, splashing around, having a good time on the paddle boat. And all of a sudden, my four-year-old son just reaches down like a good little brother. He takes off Bailey's flip-flop and just chucks it into the water, right? All the little brothers in the room, you know what that's like. All the older sisters in the room, go ahead and sigh and roll your eyes. Let me hear it, right? And uh, immediately, Bailey starts crying. He took my flip-flop and threw it in the water. He took my flip-flop, you know, and she's uh, just, you know, crying and making a big deal about it. Well, luckily, flip-flops float. (laughs) And so... They just paddled over there, got the flip-flop, right? Came back to shore, and my dad had seen the whole thing. And so he comes over, and, and, and as soon as they get off the boat, he looks at Bryson, and he said, Bryson, what happened to Bailey's flip-flop? And he looked at dad, and he said, Nana did it. <laughs> totally threw mom under the bus and just bold-faced lied, right? And we don't have to teach our kids to lie. They, they really pick up on that at an early age. And, and, and sometimes we can tell and sometimes we can't tell. And, and honestly, some of you in the room are probably good at it. You might even have been trained on how to detect deception. So if you're in the military or some kind of law enforcement, they, they do go through training like this. In fact, there's a psychologist from the University of uh, Southern California and his name is Edward Geiselman. And he's the one that trains the FBI and he trains other organizations on how to tell if people are lying to you. And so I wanna give you a couple of things that he says because there are some tendencies uh, when people are lying. You can write these down and you can go home and use them on your kids or your spouse, right? And so, so here's one of the things he says. He says, when people are lying, they, they tend to actually repeat the question that you just asked them. So when, you know, when asked, Bryson, what happened to the flip-flop, you know, a four-year-old, if he's lying, might say, what happened to the (laughs) flip-flop? That's a great question, right? We repeat the question, your kids come home late from curfew, your teenager, and you're like, why are you late from curfew? You missed curfew, why are you late? What have you been doing? And their response, if they're lying, might be, what have I been doing? That is a great question, Dad. (laughs) And the reason why they repeat the question is because they're trying to figure out what their lie is going to be. He also says that when people lie, they have a tendency to slow down with their explanations. So your kids are late from curfew. Well, Dad, what had happened was, you know, we were out. And you're like, come on, spit it out. Quit lying to me. Tell me what's going on. He also says that when people are lying, they have a tendency to like mash their lips together kind of deal or fidget with their hair or kind of fidget around, not the fidget spinners, but, but maybe, I don't know, maybe your kids are lying to you every time they spin that little deal. I don't know, maybe they'll stop and we would all love it if they would stop. But everybody has kind of those tendencies and, you know, the Bible doesn't actually tell us and, and show us how we can 
tell if somebody's lying to us. But the Bible is very clear that lying is a sin. Deception is wrong. And in the story that we're going to read today, we're going to see that there's a husband and wife in the early church that actually lie about the money that they give to the church. They lie about it. And Peter reads them as clear as day. I mean, he, he knows exactly what's happening here. And, and you think, if you've never read this story, you're probably thinking, why would anybody lie about what kind of donation they give to the church? Why would anybody do that? Well, you know, what we're going to see, though, is we're going to see really the, the culture and, and, and really the environment of the time. And we're going to see that that culture and that environment really tempted you know, Ananias and Sapphira to lie. And, and, and if you're honest today, you'll probably see the same tendencies in your own life. You'll probably see that you too have been motivated to lie and to deceive and to pretend that you are something that you are not because you just wanted to be recognized. And so let's look and, and look at verse 31 in chapter four to really begin to see the, the, really the characteristics of the early church. And so the last sentence of verse 31 says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Great phrase to underline if you've got your Bibles. And no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Another great phrase to, to underline. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. Great phrase, circle that. They're continuing to give their stories and to share their story. Their story of what? The resurrection of Jesus. And with great grace was upon them all. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Can you believe that? Nobody around them was needy. How, how could that be? Here's what he says. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had a need. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What's the culture? What's the environment? What's the vibe of this early church? Well, it's very clear to see that they were a generous group of people. They were so generous with their money. They were so generous with their time. They were so generous with offering help to one another. I mean, they had totally surrendered their life to Jesus. They believed that he died on the cross for their sins. They believed that he rose from the grave. They believed that they had been given God's grace, so they'd been forgiven. They believed wholeheartedly that Jesus had sent them on a mission to make disciples. And so they were united around this. And see, the reality is what we see because of this generosity, it's evident that they had a, an, an idea in this concept of, of being responsible to one another. You know what I mean by that? Like, like they had a responsibility to take care of one another. And, and they embraced that with joy. Think about it. If you're a mom, if you're a dad, you embrace the responsibility of being a mom or a dad. You know, you, you, you take care of your kids' needs. You buy them things that they need. Sometimes, you know, they, 
they, they want things and you don't get it for them. Why? Because of their own good. You don't want to spoil them. And so it's a joy to take care of their needs, right? Now, if there was a dad in the room and, it, you know, it's Father's Day and so we're, we're all excited about dads, but there's a dad in the room and he's bought himself a really nice bass boat. He's got this decked out amazing, you know, car and he's got a great set of golf clubs. Callaway clubs are, you know, in the garage and he's got, you know, nice clothes. He, he, he's got everything that he needs and his kids are running around with shoes that don't fit and they got holes in them, what would you say? You'd probably say, what's up with that dad, right? Bad father. He has enough money to buy all this great stuff for him, but he's not providing for his own kids, right? Now, that's very, you know, for us, that's easy to say bad dad. Like, we wouldn't do that. Why? Well, because we have a responsibility to take care of our kids. We do that with joy. And what we're seeing in the early church here is they had this sense of responsibility to take care of one another, and they did that with joy. So you have people that are buying land that is unnecessary in their life, and they're bringing the money that they make from that land, and they're giving it to the church so that it can be distributed and used for ministry, for the advancement of the gospel, right? And so we see this generosity, and we see this attitude. They are taking responsibility to care for and to love and to serve one another. Now, the people at FC, I hope you're experiencing that same responsibility. When you become a partner at Foothills Church, you're, you're carrying that responsibility that you're gonna attend, that you're gonna serve, that you're gonna give, that you're gonna be in a small group. And when you carry that responsibility and you take that seriously, if there's a need in your small group, if there's a need amongst your circle of friends, guess what you're gonna do? with great joy, you're going to fulfill that need in their life. If somebody loses their job in your small group and they can't buy groceries for the week, pff, it's a no-brainer. We're going to take care of that need. And a million other examples of, of how we support one another and care for one another. But why do we do that? Because we have a sense of responsibility to care for one another. Now, if you're just hit or miss at FC, you attend whenever, you're not in a small group, you're not really serving, you're definitely not giving, as a result, you're not experiencing the same type of unity and the same type of responsibility that the early church experienced. And I want to encourage you to take that next step, to get connected, to go to base camp, to become a partner and enjoy that responsibility because as you take care of other people's needs around you, you too one day will need that care and concern. I think the rub and the, and the, and the challenge in the culture of our society is that people think that you're a part of a church if you attend every now and then. If you show up once a month or, you know, whenever you feel like it, and then a need arises in your life, and then you come knocking at the church's door, the people in the church, and say, fulfill this need. I need this. I need that. And the church is like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We don't have, re you know, we, we've got a process for this. Whereas if you're connected it's a no-brainer. You don't have, there, there's nothing structurally that the church even does. The people around you, boom, fulfill the need and move forward. This is what the early church is experiencing. This is what we as a church need to experience. And, and I, would, I, would, I would bet, I'd be willing to bet that those partners in the room who are serving and giving and in a small group, you have, you've fulfilled needs throughout this church and you've done so with great joy. God has blessed you for it. And that's why you continue to plug in. That's why you're here because of this fellowship, this relationship in this church. Now, there's a few characteristics of generosity that we learn here that I wanna mention. And the first one is this, if you're taking notes. Generosity is evidence of the Holy Spirit's power. In verse 31, it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now listen, it is, it is not natural to be generous. It just isn't natural. It's actually supernatural. I believe in, in, in order for us to live a lifestyle of generosity, it's a result of the Holy Spirit living in our life. Sure, we can be generous, you know, sporadically here and there, but to really live a life of generosity, it's, it's, it's truly only accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not natural, it's supernatural. And so if you give generously to Foothills Church with your time, with your money, with your energy, then that's evidence of the Holy Spirit living and empowering your life. The second thing about generosity is that generosity creates unity. In verse 32, it says that they had one mind, one spirit. Now, this is huge. The actual Greek word means the heart and the soul were one. When we live in generosity as a church, it really, truly unites us. Now, listen, a few days ago in the text, Acts chapter 2 takes place. And this is Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit comes for the first time. And, and the scripture says that the apostles started speaking in different languages, known languages, because there were 15 different people groups represented. Parthians, Medes, the list goes on and on. You can look it up. But the reality is there were all these different people groups there. They speak in native languages to these people to hear the gospel. And 3,000 people are added to the church. We read last week, 5,000 people were, were, were had, the church had grown to 5,000 people. That was just men and, and, and not including women and children. So the church is now six, seven, I don't know, 10,000 people. And it says that they were all of one heart and mind. That's mind blowing to me. How could all of these people from different you know, cultures, different languages, be of one heart, be of one spirit. That's a work of the Holy Spirit, but they were united around the mission and the vision that God had given to them to go and to make disciples. Now listen, unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that everybody in the church has to act and live and believe exactly the same thing. I mean, just look at the New Testament. Paul is writing all these letters to these various churches and, and they're arguing about what food they should eat, what clothes they should wear, what customs they should you know, incorporate into their life. And so they all had different opinions. And so I wanna be very clear, like when we talk about unity here, it doesn't mean that everybody believes every single thing the same way. That's not what we're asking. In, in fact, I think that is, is, is a form of disunity. With so many people in our church, the reality is we're going we're gonna to rally around some core essential theological beliefs. We talk about this in base camp as our essentials. And so we rally around who Jesus is, what is the Bible, who is God, and a host of other things. We rally around the vision of making disciples in relational environments. And we're to develop into that maturity there. That's our rallying cry. That is what unites us here at Foothills Church. Now, outside of that, we're going to have different opinions about other things, and that is okay. In fact, that is a good thing. That helps us hold each other accountable. That helps us think outside of the box, and God uses that diversity to meet needs in our city and to allow other people from different cultures to come into our church and to find likeness in those relationships. This is a good thing. Their mentality, though, at this time was this isn't mine, this is God's. And so it's easier for me to sell it and to give it. It's easier for me to meet this need by, by giving of what I have to you because it's not mine anyway. This is a huge mentality and attitude. Like we wanna, we've gotta grasp this, folks. When we begin to see the gifts that God has given to us, okay, God has given me this, but my attitude has to be, he's given me this so that it can flow through me. 
not so that I can hold on to it and grasp it and be stingy with it. God blesses me with this. I let it flow through me so that I can bless other people. This is the attitude of this early church. This is what God calls us to. It's not mine. That's a life-transforming attitude to say the things that I have aren't really mine. The house isn't mine. The paycheck really isn't mine. My talents don't even really belong to me. My kids aren't even really mine. It really all belongs to God. If you live by that attitude, it changes the way that you interact with people. You realize it's not mine. Build my little kingdom, become possessive. Oh, it's mine, can't touch it. We teach our kids at a young age to share their toys. Then we get older and we start hoarding toys again. God calls us to be generous and to share. And, and this is the mentality here. As this attitude reveals um, in their actual actions, like there's not a need that doesn't go unmet. All the needs are met. Imagine in our city and in our church if all the needs were being met. Well, I'll tell you this, if people were selling property that they didn't need, selling toys that they didn't need, and bringing that money to the church so that we could start ministries and hire people to meet needs in this city and, and, and promote the gospel, it would transform this city. It would transform our own heart. This is where the early church is. I believe the most uh, unified people are the most generous people. And I can look at the course of the last eight years of our church and, and I can prove that just by saying, okay, who is really united? It's the people that have given the most to this church. And, and I, I believe that's a reality. And in John chapter 17, Jesus even prays for this. He's in the garden, he's about to be arrested and he's praying for unity in his church. And he says, I'm praying that they may be one even as we are one. He's talking to his heavenly father. Verse 23, he says, I in them and you in me, that we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. His prayer is that I want them to be united so that the world would know that God loves them and God sent me into the world to save them. You see, when we are truly united, when we're generous together, we're united around the vision and, and, and the idea of this mission to make disciples, the world sees us differently. What are y'all doing over there? You guys like each other, you love each other, you meet each other's needs. Why is this so contrary to the culture? Because in our culture, it's a dog-eat-dog world, right? Take care of numero uno. Survival of the fittest, man. You got to take care of yourself. But then in the life of the church, you see people who are not hoarding their material possessions, but they are allowing what God gives them to flow through them to bless other people. This gets the attention of the community. And that opens up the door for us to talk about Jesus. And that opens up the door for a culture that is lost and, 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 and hopeless that don't have authentic relationships in their life, to see a vision and, and, and see a glimpse of what it would look like to live in relationship with people who actually care for you. Thirdly, generosity actually advances the gospel. And this is a no-brainer here. In verse 33, we're seeing that the, the apostles are continuing to share their testimony. And they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. They couldn't shut up about who Jesus was. The authorities told them when we read it last week, stop talking about Jesus. They didn't stop. They couldn't stop. They couldn't stop talking about the man that had transformed their life. And Acts 5.14, you can look at it. It's just on the other page probably. It says, more and more believers were added to the Lord, a multitude of men and women, so as this generosity and this culture was growing amongst the first believers, more and more people were being added to the church because it is so contagious. Our culture 
is just hungry for, for authenticity, hungry for relationships that we as Christians should be experiencing. And as a result of that, we're able to share the gospel. We're able to share our stories, our testimony, so that other people can hear about Jesus. And so it's, it's obvious. The more generous we are, the more we can advance the gospel. I, uh, I hear this from time to time when I talk about, you know, money or stewardship at our church. And you've heard this before. This is nothing new for you. But, you know, churches, you know, are notoriously known from certain groups of people in culture that all they care about is money. All that church cares about is my money. How many of you guys have ever heard that? Let's show a hand. Just let's see. All, okay. Everybody has heard they just want my money. Now, the reality is it's going to be furthest from the truth. But next time you hear somebody say that about our church or, or me or whatever, you have my permission to just punch them in the, I'm sorry, pray for them. I get those two P words mixed up. Pray for them right there. Just kidding. No, here's the reality. Like God's not after your money. I certainly am not. But what God wants to do is rid the idols of your heart. And if you're living a life that is just focused on building your own kingdom, you have an idol that could be greed. You could have an idol that is, 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 is filled with a lust for comfort, a lust for pleasure, whatever it is. And God wants to rid us of those idols and truly worship him. Now, at Foothills Church, man, we have a common mission. That mission is to make disciples in relational environments. And so we're passionate about that. That unifies our church. And so we are committed to give our resources towards that mission. And so you can't even be on staff here if you've made that commitment. Like I, I, I would not allow anyone to remain a staff member at our church if they were not giving financially to the church. Because I, I wholeheartedly believe that if you're not generous toward God's people, you have no right to lead God's people. And so we, we are above reproach. We go out of our way to handle the resources that are given to our church appropriately. We had an outside audit done to our church, not because we had to, we wanted to. And uh, we want you to know that we take that, that, that leadership extremely serious. And we want to be above reproach because we know that as people give, they, they want to give to the mission I want to give. I've given generously to this church for over eight years. I mean, I want to know that what we do with that money is actually advancing the kingdom of God. We're in a unique season as a church. Like we started, we didn't have a building. We prayed God would give us a building. He gave us a 35,000 square foot building and we didn't know how we were gonna pay for it. And we just trusted God was gonna take care of it. We realized this sucker needs to be renovated. This isn't really meant to be a church. And so we asked people to give over and above what they normally give. And you know what? They did. They rallied around the concept and idea that what we're doing here is we're creating space for unchurched people, for people who don't know Jesus to come and to meet Jesus. And as a result of their faithfulness over the years, we've created space. Many of you have showed up as a result. Now as a church, we're taking even a, a, an even bigger step by building an even bigger building. Not because we wanna be a bigger church or have a bigger student ministry, but simply because we wanna open up space so that people who have never heard the gospel can have a place to hear the gospel and be transformed by his power. That's our mission. As you give to this church, you are allowing us to advance that mission. You are a part of that mission. As we send people to London in a couple of weeks, and then a few weeks we're sending people to Southeast Asia. We've got five people right now all over the world. 
you know, taking the gospel with them, every time you give, you're allowing that mission to be advanced. And man, I'm excited about it. I do that with great joy, and I hope you do that with great joy. People ask, how are you going to pay for that, man? My generosity, your generosity, and God's gonna do that. God's gonna do that through you. He's gonna do that through me. Number four, if you're taking notes, generosity is so stinking encouraging. Can, you just, can we just get an amen today on that? Generous people, don't you just wanna be with them all the time? There's a guy named Barnabas here, uh, but it's actually a nickname. His real name is Joseph. But because he's so stinking generous, and if you read you know, the entire book of Acts, you, you're gonna see him repeatedly in the New Testament, uh, always giving, always being an encouragement, and the disciples, they, they see this guy. He's always giving, always encouraging. And so we know your name's Joseph, but we're going to give you a nickname. You're going to be Barnabas. Now, some of you guys have a nickname, right? And uh, you got it on the basketball court or the football field. And, and uh, it was because, you know, typically because you did something. And they're like, man, look at that guy. And he, you know, you got the nickname and it was funny. But, but wouldn't, you be, wouldn't it be awesome if your nickname was, was son of encouragement? Man, you're so encouraging. We're just gonna we're just gonna name you son of encouragement. We all need a Barnabas in our life. We want we want and we need somebody that's gonna encourage us and be generous to us with their knowledge, be generous to us with you know in times of financial need, generous to us with you know uh, words of affirmation, and we we need everybody needs somebody like that. But what I find is it's so hard sometimes to be that person to other people. We want it, we desire it, we need it. But for many of us, we don't want to be that person. But what I think we're seeing here in the, in, in the early church is, is they're, they're championing this guy who was generous. The culture of the early church is generosity. Barnabas sells property. I don't need that. I had some property, man. I bought it maybe as an investment. I was going to build a house. I was going to do something. I don't really need it. So he sells it and he brings the money, all of it, and he gives it to the apostles. He gives it to the church. Man, you guys use it to advance the gospel, to meet needs in our city. We all want to be around Barnabas. But are we, in fact, living a life to actually become Barnabas? So this is the culture. You got guys getting recognized. Look at this guy. He's getting a nickname. Everybody's talking about him. Everybody's selling their possessions. There's no needs around them. The hype, the energy, the unity, the advancement of the gospel, people coming to know Christ. This is the exciting culture of the early church. And then in that culture, step in this husband and wife team named Ananias and Sapphira. And let's read what happens to them. In verse one, it says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, mind you, good little phrase to underline, she knew exactly what he was doing. They conspired together. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, he could tell he was lying. Maybe he was playing with his hair, fidgeting. I don't know what he was doing, but Peter could tell. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse four, four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. 
And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Dude just died. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what's taken place. And Peter said to her, this was her opportunity to tell the truth. He said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Doesn't even say how much. It's not about the amount, is it? Tell me, did you sell the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. She lied. Verse nine, and Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. She dies. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So what's their, what's their problem here? Why did they lie? They sell property. They bring the proceeds. The issue, though, is that they say, this is how much we sold the property for, and we're bringing it all. But they only brought a part of it. Now, what Peter tells them here is, guys, didn't you own the property? It was at your disposal. In other words, nobody commanded you to sell it. Nobody forced you to sell it. Nobody told you you had to give it to the church. You did that under, under your own contrition. Like that's, that's what you wanted to do. This is what's interesting. Had they just said, you know what? We sold it for 20,000, but we're, we're only gonna give the church 10,000. No problem. No issue at all. Everybody would have said, Ananias and Sapphira, way to go, 10 grand. It's amazing. But they said, we sold it for 20 and we're giving you all. But they really sold it for 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever it was. And they end up, here, here's the reality. They lied. The culture is, let's praise and let's, let's get on board with all the people who are being generous. This is awesome. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted the affluency. They wanted to be on the pedestal, right? And so they said, all right, we'll sell it. But when they got that money, they were like, huh, you know, we were wanting to get that new fill in the blank. Instead of giving all of it, let's just hold a little bit back so that we can get this and do this for ourselves. And in that moment when they decided to lie about what they were giving, they sinned. And immediately judgment fell upon them. Now, for us, you read that and you're like, man, judgment's a little bit hard, right? Hopefully God's not going to condemn me and kill me next time I lie, right? Is he still doing that? Well, this was a very unique situation, very unique time in the life of the early church. Obviously, God wanted to show that that, that wasn't just a casual lie. That was a serious offense against the Holy Spirit. Yeah, they were lying to Peter, but ultimately they're lying to God. And had they gotten away with this, who knows? The gospel and the unity and the advancement of the gospel could have totally crumbled. Earlier in, in the, uh, chapter 2, chapter 3 of Acts, we see Satan attacking and, and persecuting the early church with threats. Now Satan is attacking the church internally, causing people to be deceptive, divisive. This is what the enemy wants in our church too. He wants us to lie. He wants us to live hypocritical lives. He wants us to show up on Sunday and pretend everything is just fine. Meanwhile, we're in an affair. Meanwhile, we're the biggest cheaters at work. He wants us to put on a good smile and a good face, show up from time to time, make everybody think that we're spiritual. 
That's exactly what he wants you to do. The reality is, if we're lying to other people, we're really lying to God. And yes, judgment happens. Judgment will take place. God's not going to allow that to go on forever. Now, I think the desire to impress people outweighs our desire to honor God all the time. And, and uh, we all want to be generous. We all want to look generous. The truth is, we're just like Ananias and Sapphira. We want to look like we're doing the right thing spiritually, even if we're not. Think about our culture in this respect. The, the, the big you know, trend in business today is to say, buy our product because we're giving to such and such. It's called calls marketing, generous marketing. And the, and the reality is, okay, you buy this product and we're going to give a dollar to hungry kids in Africa. You know, buy our product and we're going to donate X amount of dollars to, you know, cancer research, right? And so we buy it and we, we get hook, line, and sinker on the idea that because I bought this and they gave me a sticker that I care about cancer, care about hungry kids, we feel good about ourselves. I gave blood, give me a sticker, post it on Facebook, look at me, Right? I'm gonna change my profile picture today because I gave to hunger relief and whatever this and whatever that. A lot of times there's an earthquake or there's some kind of tragedy and you know, we're gonna give $5 or $1 to this all in an attempt to make us look like we're generous. It's sporadic and it's not very much. Now, if we wanna give to those organizations, I hope that you do and I hope that you're generous. But the reality is we don't want to pretend and act like we're something that we really aren't. We want to put on this, this show that we're generous or put on this show that we care about, you know, human trafficking or hunger around the world or this or that. But the reality is if we're just throwing a buck or five bucks at it so we can get a sticker or a new profile picture, we can jump on the bandwagon of generosity in our culture, then we feel good about ourselves. But that, in fact, is not what Scripture is teaching us. Bandwagons are big today, right? How many Nashville Predator fans we got in the room? <laughs> Anybody a Predator fan? Nobody's going to admit it. If you are, were you one last year? Maybe, maybe not. How many Warrior fans, Golden State Warrior fans? Any Golden State Warrior fans, Steph Curry fans, anybody? All right, got a couple. Did you like him back when Chris Mullins was there? <laughs> yeah, you don't even know who he is. Like, who is that, right? Why? Because they were terrible back then. You didn't like them then. And the only reason why we like them now is because they're winning. And that's kind of culture, isn't it? When people are winning, we're gravitating towards them. The same is true in generosity. We gravitate towards those people who are generous and we gravitate towards the concept and, and towards the mentality or the perception that we too are generous. But folks, are you really? Or are you just putting on a show? I think we've been guilty of this. Peter says you're lying to God. I think the reality of what they're dealing with is greed, greed in their heart. Some people say, uh, you know, your, your idol is money. And so you're greedy and your idol is money. But the reality is money isn't really our idol. What, what we struggle with is what money gives to us. So if, you're, if, you're, you know, if your idol is comfort, you need money to make your life more comfortable. So it's not necessarily money that you're worshiping. It's comfort that you're worshiping. Maybe beauty is your idol and you need money to look more beautiful and to have nicer clothes and to make yourself look whatever. And so you need that money, but your idol is beauty. Maybe your idol is status. 
And so in order to get a higher and bigger and grander status, you need more money to support that in your life. And Jesus isn't after your money. God isn't trying to get your money. He's trying to get the idol out of your heart. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus says in Luke 12.15, he says, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. And yet that's one of the biggest temptations and biggest struggles every single one of us face in this culture. Make us look like we're something, but we're not. Make us look like we're going to do something spiritual, but we don't really. We're not lying to Peter. We're not lying to your pastor. You're just lying to God. What would it look like, though, if we actually began to emulate and to model the early church? What if we actually got excited about being generous? What if we actually started selling things that we don't really need so that we could give more money to the mission? What would it look like if we truly embraced the commitment that we made to God when we joined Foothills Church? As a partner, you committed to attend, you committed to serve, you committed to go to a small group, and you committed to give. Look at me, I'm partnering. Look at me, I'm doing it. I want everybody to know I'm doing it. But are we really fulfilling that commitment? That could be a tough one for us today if that's not truth, if that's not true for you. But I think if we began to become Barnabas, if we began, uh, began to think and to act and to live with generous hearts, imagine how many people could hear the gospel. Imagine how, many, how much money and more resources we could have to advance ministry in this city. Instead of building our kingdom and, and holding tightly onto our possessions, what if, what if we decided to take what God gives us and let it flow through us? In fact, that's the bottom line for today. If you don't hear anything else, think about this concept today. I want to take what God gives me and I want to let it flow through me because everything that I have belongs to him. Everything. And as he gives to me, man, I'm going to let that flow out and I'm going to actually use that to encourage and bless other people. Now, what do you do with all this? You've been encouraged. You've been challenged. You found that there's some greed. Maybe there's some idols in your heart. You've been living selfishly. How do you become generous? Here's one challenge. I'm gonna encourage you, if you found that to be true in your life, to go home this week and decide to give something away. Something that's important to you. Just give it away. Give it to the church. Give it to somebody else. I don't care. But perhaps in order to break the hardness of your heart, the selfishness in your own heart, Perhaps one of the, the, the catalysts to move you forward as a generous person would be to take something important to you or valuable to you and give it away and bless someone else. Now, for others of you, it might just be a simple commitment to follow through on the commitments you've already made. Just like Ananias and Sapphira, it's easy to make the commitment and sometimes we struggle with actually coming through on that commitment. So partners in the room, are you serving? Are you giving? Are you attending regularly? Are you in a group? You know, if God's called you to this church, you have a responsibility to me. I have a responsibility to you. And so let's embrace the call that God has given to us. As he gives to me, let's let it flow through me. Let's pray. Lord, we're challenged today by looking at the early believers. And in a culture where we, we get status by having more stuff, 
we get more comfort. We think we have more fun by having these things. Lord, I, I pray that you would break that, that bondage in our own heart and in our own life. We pray, God, that you would challenge us and encourage us. Give us the grace to live a generous life, a life just like Barnabas, that we would, we would, we would give freely. We would bless others. And Father, we pray that we would do that with joy as we serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.